0: From PF Radio in Cincinnati, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Actually, it's PF doing what is hopefully a passable impression of Ira Glass. Today on our show, the first in a series of homage episodes in which PF's tape recorder is done in the style of an admired radio show or podcast, This Week, This American Life. And we start with another admired and influential program. Second City Television, or SCTV, was a sketch comedy show that began airing in the U.S. and Canada in 1977. The premise was that there was this TV station in a town called Mellonville that was run by these odd characters. The show parodied local and national TV programs and commercials, and the cast were adept at imitating just about any celebrity of the day. Well, almost any. Case in point, a skit called The Merv Griffin Show. In the sketch, talk show host Merv Griffin, portrayed by Rick Moranis, takes on the role of Andy Taylor, Sheriff of Mayberry. The rest of the cast assumed the roles of the Andy Griffith Show characters, but there was a problem with the Gomer Pyle character, who in the Andy Griffith Show was played by Jim Neighbors.
1: Uh, Rick Moranis
0: wrote the sketch,
1: and he just assumed
0: that I could do Jim Neighbors. This is former SCTV cast member Dave Thomas, not PF doing a terrible impression of Dave Thomas. Uh, For the sketch, Dave was supposed to do the Gomer Pyle Jim Neighbors character. He currently lives in Los Angeles, where he works on a number of TV shows. He recalls what happened next.
1: And I wasn't really that kind of impersonator. The stuff that I did had to be somebody that I either felt I had a connection with or um, somehow that I could get inside their heads. I'm a buff of the space program, so I could get inside Walter Cronkite's head, because so was he. I was a fan of Bob Hope, and I could get inside his head. Uh, I had met and understood Richard Harris real well, so I could get inside his head. The impersonation of Jim Neighbors, which every comedian seemed to be able to do, was something that I just couldn't do. I couldn't do it at all. And so, Rick was determined to have me in the piece. So, I did the lamest impersonation of Jim Neighbors anybody had ever heard. And then Rick, as Merv Griffin, came out and said, Fred Travelina as Jim Neighbors, ladies and gentlemen. So he blamed my lousy impersonation on the comedian Fred Travelina, who did a lot of impersonations and well, you know, certainly better than he did Jim neighbors, much better than I did.
0: So it was Rick who, who decided it was going to be Fred Travelina just on the spot.
1: Absolutely. When he heard that my impersonation was as crappy as I told him it was, he, <laughs> <laughs> he laughed. We, we, we reset, and then he set it up as um,
0: Fred Travolina, um impersonating Jim Neighbors. Today on our program, Best Impressions, our show in three acts. We'll hear P.F. doing impressions of Brian Williams and Jim Rome. Then the amazing full interview with Dave Thomas, in which we discover the origins of SCTV, as well as that of the characters of Bob and Doug McKenzie. From P.F. Radio in Cincinnati, it's P.F.'s tape recorder done as an homage to This American Life. I'm PF imitating Aaron Glass. Stay with us. This American Life, I'm Glass. Actually, PF's tape recorder, done in the style of This American Life. This week on our show, Best Impressions, Act 1, Fake News, in which PF attempts to do an impression of Brian Williams of NBC Nightly News, which isn't someone a lot of comics or impersonators attempt to imitate. Here it is. <laughs> From NBC News World Headquarters in New York, it's NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams. Good evening. Tonight on our program, some churches have said they will end their affiliation with the Boy Scouts after its decision to allow openly gay members to join. Others, including Southern Baptists, are considering their next move. Another group plans to hold a meeting later this month with parents who say they want a more Christian organization for their children. Lunch will be catered by Chick-fil-A. Representative Trent Franks of Arizona said Wednesday that the incidences of pregnancy from rape are very low months after a similar comment led Todd Inkin to lose a Senate race in Missouri. Experts say that it is not low, say like the chances of finding a moderate Republican anywhere in the GOP. Representative Steve Stockman of Texas, a noted critic of President Obama, especially when it comes to guns, so it probably isn't surprising that Stockman is raffling a Bushmaster AR-15 rifle with a jab at the President. Grab this gun before Obama does, the congressman says, apparently oblivious to the notion that the President could just as easily grab it from you, if he had that power, which he of course does not. In recent days, social media images of fast food workers doing pretty disgusting things with brand name food have gone viral. The latest shows an unidentified Wendy's worker at an unidentified location bending down with his mouth wide open under the familiar Frosty machine as he gobbles down the ice creamy treat. That comes just days after a photo went viral of an unidentified Taco Bell employee licking a stack of taco shells and a McDonald's employee assembling one of that chain's burgers. Congressman Mike Rogers of Michigan is the latest lawmaker to make a linguistic blunder when it comes to National Security Agency leaker Edward Snowden. Speaking to reporters Thursday, Rogers made clear for the first time that he thinks Snowden ought to be tried for treason. The Republican Rogers retracted that statement after he realized that this whole incident would actually hurt the administration. The Navy is switching to a new messaging system that's cheaper and more efficient, and that does away with a century-old practice, communications using all uppercase letters. The message announcing the change was the last that will ever be sent, in all caps, by the Navy, and included a smiley face emoticon. And finally, this story from England. Ringo Starr has tantalized fans of the Fab Four for years, suggesting that a reunion could have happened if fate had not robbed the world of two of its greatest pop music totems. In a candid interview with Britain's Daily Mail, the Fab Four drummer said, It's a crazy question, but quickly added, I'd like to think yes, we would. Star said that in 2013, there may be a reunion of the surviving Beatles, minus Paul McCartney. That's our program for this evening. Thank you for joining us. Lester Holt will be here tomorrow night. Good night. PF, doing fake news as Brian Williams. Now Act 2, dumb bit. where PF will do his impression of Jim Rome. Jim Rome is a nationally syndicated sports talk show host. He also has a TV show on the CBS Sports Network. And PF used to do this impression of Jim Rome on the old Gary Burbank show, where it was actually quite popular. He reprises it for us now. Hi, I'm Jim Rome. Welcome back to the jungle. Arr! Ottawa returns to the CFL next season clones. You're probably saying, Rome, why do you care? The CFL's is triple A. Filled with guys who can't make it in the NFL. I get that. The CFL isn't at the same level as the NFL. I get that. I totally get that. I just don't buy it. Here's why. It's still pro football, clones. It's regular season football in the summer, and it makes a nice palate cleanser. Don't get me wrong. The CFL has its problems. Case in point, the new Ottawa team. They're going to be called the Red Blacks. The Red Blacks? Make up your minds. Look, the hockey senators got it right. Not the most original name, but it made sense. Red, black? Hey, should we call ourselves red or black? I don't know. How about both? It was like they were sitting around, deciding on a name, and it came down to two camps. I think we should be reds. No, we should be blacks. Hey, we're Canadians. Let's be nice and compromise. Red, blacks. A lot of indecision there, clones. Should we be the red or the black? Why not both? Both. It's like they were sitting around and they couldn't decide and they decided, hey, let's do both. Let's call it Red Black. Still, it's a better name than that of their old team, the Rough Riders. But Rome, that's kind of a cool name. Except another team in the league already had it. Hey, what should we call our team? I don't know. I like the name Rough Riders like they use out in Saskatchewan. Let's use that. It's like they were sitting around in a room and they were stuck for a name. Where can we find a name? I don't know. How about from another team in our league? I'm sure they won't mind. After all, they're Canadian too. But the new name is Red Blacks, and some fans don't like it. Got an email. Dear Rome, that name doesn't make any sense for Ottawa. Signed, the LA Lakers, Utah Jazz, and Calgary Flames. That's from Jim in Crapanapolis. Look, clones, don't jam up my inbox with team nickname emails. They are not funny, and I will not read them. Here's another one. Dear Rome, you mean you can pick more than one color? Signed, the Cincinnati Reds, the Cleveland Browns, and the St. Louis Blues. That's not funny. First of all, Clones, the Browns are named after a person, and the Blues are named after a style of music. Thanks, Bob in Crappington, D.C. But stop sending the team nickname emails. They are not funny, and I will not read them. Here's another one. Dear Rome, the new Ottawa football team should never, never, ever change that name. Signed, Daniel Snyder and Taylor Swift? Jay's Stu is tracking down a guest for the next hour. We might finally get to your phone calls in the next hour if I get tired of talking to myself, which isn't likely. Out. PF, doing Jim Rome. Rackham, he's out. Coming up, the full interview with SCTV's Dave Thomas, in which we find out the true origins of Bob and Doug McKenzie. That's in a minute. From PF Radio, this is PF's tape recorder done as This American Life, and our program continues.
1: Hey, this is Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and you're listening to PF's Tape Recorder, and I've been on that show. It's a good show, I think. I have to, I'm still figuring out how to listen to podcasts.
0: It's PF's Tape Recorder, done as an homage to This American Life. I'm of Glass. Today on our program, Best Impressions. So far, we've heard fake news with an impression of Brian Williams. A dumb bit with PF struggling through his Jim Rome impression. Now, Act 3, The Interview. P.F. uses his regular voice to interview Dave Thomas, who talks about doing impressions, American and Canadian pop culture, and the origins of Second City television. Well, first of all, yeah. let me tell you that um, th- this is a huge honor because I know I've know a lot of comedians always say, oh, well, I grew up watching Johnny Carson with my dad. And and I certainly did that, too. But the big show for us was SCTV. That was kind of like our thing. And uh, huge, huge fans. In fact, probably my dad's favorite thing is the man who would be king of the popes. <laughs> That just killed... your Richard Harris impression. Kills him every time. <laughs> and wow, We, we watch it on DVD nice. sometimes when uh, when he's up here or I'm down there. We uh, we'll watch them together, and that's our that's our favorite sketch to watch together.
1: My fa- my favorite Richard Harris that I did on the show was um, MacArthur Park. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> they threw they threw the stuff at you. You threatened to sue two, Mel.
1: <laughs> there were two things about it that I particularly liked. One. When he actually released that uh, song, there's a high note at, in it, which. Yeah, there yeah. Was a, there, was a, <laughs> there was a story, kind of like an urban myth, or maybe probably was real, that he hadn't hit the high note, that they brought in a singer to hit the high note. Yeah. So I took that story, and while I was doing my version of uh, MacArthur Park on Mel's Rock Pile, there was a girl sitting. In yeah, a chair, on a stool, beside the microphone, <laughs> reading a book. Yeah. And when we got to the high note, she stood up, did the high
0: note, and I <laughs> pulled
1: the mic away from her and bowed and took credit for
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you rush. Her, you've moved, you move, you motion your hand to rush her over real quick to the mic because she's reading a book or something, yeah, and she jumps yeah. up and runs to the microphone. Hilarious. Yeah. Uh, another favorite was a series of uh, movies from the UK that featured the young man in rage. Oh, your dad liked those. Yeah, I like that a lot too. We both did. We always whenever I had, had, had to ride a bus anywhere he'd always ask me, do you have to ride bus somewhere doing an impression of you doing your your character <laughs> so.
1: well he he had a pretty sophisticated sense of comedy then because the two things you're pointing out man who would be king of the popes and those angry young men things from Was he British? Did he have a British Well,
0: funny, we're both Anglophiles. My mom is French. She uh, studied in Britain and taught French to rich British kids uh, on an estate. And then my mom uh, met my dad in France, but they moved and lived in England for all. My brother was born in England. I was born in Boring, Willoughby, Ohio. But uh, yeah, they're very much Anglophiles and we're very much fans of British culture and British comedy. So yeah, that probably is another reason why that kind of resonated with us. Another thing that uh, resonated with me, my favorite single episode of the whole SCTV catalog is when everybody went on strike. All the SCTV employees went on strike, and Guy Caballero figured, I'll just bring in some CBC programming. And I did love that. And growing up in Cleveland across the lake from Canada, I was very familiar with CBC programming. So to me, it was hilarious. But I also thought... No one is going to get this that's further than 50 miles from the border, probably. <laughs> yeah, but, that's uh, probably true. But it was but I mean, awesome. Oh, my God. I, this is my favorite episode.
1: A lot of Americans appreciated the Canadian references and things like that as just being kind of quaint. Right. Bill Oakley, who was a showrunner on The Simpsons for a few years and is now doing Portlandia, is a friend of mine. And he said that he and his friends didn't have any sort of reference for Bob and Doug McKenzie other than that they were Canadian and they seemed to have a kind of a quaintness and charm that was distinctively Canadian and they appreciated it kind of in abstraction because of that.
0: Right, yeah. And having vacation in Canada a lot, you know, this, and again, me being familiar with Canadian culture. In fact, uh, when my dad would come on the weekends, uh, we'd drive around, and we could pick up uh, an FM station from, I think it was London, and we'd listen to the Air Force. The Air Force used to run uh, their show Saturday mornings at 11, so we'd be out running errands, and we'd listen to, to the Air Force. So Yes,
1: see, that's odd, because you would, as an American, would be seeking out Canadian programming, whereas Canadians were doing everything they could to avoid (laughs) watching it.
0: (laughs) Well, again, I'm a huge canafile, and uh, I have met one other person in the entertainment business. I interview a lot of comedians, (laughs) sometimes musicians. I've met one other Canadian uh, who is a fan of the Canadian Football League, and that's a band uh, from Hamilton, your hometown, uh, the Artels. Oh, okay. Yeah, and they even did a video for the team. Uh, I think it's called Saturday Night or something. Football and it's them and the team and it's a really cool video you can look up on YouTube. Yeah, but they're the only other ones. Everyone else is like, why would you watch the Canadian Football <laughs> League? <laughs> but I like it. it's wide open. It starts in the summer. I mean, a nice little you know, a nice little appetizer for NFL action. Yeah, so I'm an odd bird. You grew up in Hamilton and you have an older brother who is a musician, of course, who appeared on an episode of Second City. Uh,
1: Wrong on both counts. Really. Um, first of all, he's my younger brother by two years. Oh, I thought he was. Uh, secondly, I didn't grow up in Hamilton. I was a teenager in Dundas, which is outside of Hamilton. Uh, but but I grew up in North Carolina. Oh. I was born in Canada, and we left. My dad was uh, taught philosophy, and he was at Duke, and we were in North Carolina from when I was six years old till I was twelve years old. Oh wow. So those are pretty formative years yeah. in the development of a kid.
0: Hmm. And
1: I got a big Southern connection.
0: And yet, oddly, you still could not do Jim Neighbors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but
1: I could do other
0: Southerners. Yes, yes. Well, what I was curious about was, though, of course, he went into music and had a successful career in Canada, and you went into comedy. Were there any cross interests there? Or were you kind of interested in music, too, and he got an interested in comedy? Or was it? did you guys pretty much go on separate paths early on?
1: I was in a... Um, jug band in my teens and played banjo and I was not really interested in music. I did it because my brother was a really good guitarist and very gifted but I wasn't. I think I have a good musical ear and I can sing, but I don't have the mechanical skills to play any instrument at all. I learned to play my I took piano lessons when I was a kid and I can play a little bit of piano, but I play the piano really like a bad honky-tonk piano player, and, you know, I don't have those skills, and, and so I didn't even bother with it, really, I, I wasn't passionate about it. My brother was uh, at a school assembly, he did God Save the Queen on a shower hose, <laughs> like a piece of rubber tubing, and made it so beautifully musical that he, he got applause, he could play anything, you know?
0: And so how did you wind up back in
1: Canada? Two things drove us back. First of all, my dad saw the um, United States getting involved in the Vietnam War, and there was a draft then. And he didn't want either Ian or I to be drafted. And then about, because my dad had spent a year at the Oriental Institute and studied their philosophy um, and had that as kind of a sub-skill set, this car pulls up to our house and it's guys in black suits get out. Turns out it's from they're from the Central Intelligence Agency and they offered my dad a job writing documents which would be dropped on Vietnam as pamphlets that undermined Asian philosophy and religion. My dad said, okay, we're out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we went to England for a year and I think he, he was in uh, Edinburgh doing some... Guest lecturing or something there, and then we, and then he got a job in Hamilton at McMaster University, and then we moved there. Okay, so that's how I ended up back in Hamilton.
0: So, um, so you're back in Canada, I guess uh, eventually Ian pursues his music career, and you kind of gravitate toward comedy. How do you finally wind up uh, with Second City?
1: Well, they started a Toronto version of this club that had started in 1958 in Chicago and it spawned some pretty big comedians. You know, Elaine May, Mike Nichols, uh, Robert Klein, David Steinberg, Alan Alda, Joan Rivers. There was just a ton of people that went through there in the uh, 50s and early 60s. And so in the 70s, they started a club in Toronto. And um, I had been in the cast of Godspell in Toronto with my friends Martin Short and Eugene Levy, who I went to college with at McMaster. But after that show, I couldn't get an acting job, so I wrote up some fake ads, and got a job as a copywriter at uh, McCann Erickson. So I was in advertising as a copywriter when they opened Second City in Toronto. And the first cast had Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, Valerie Bromfield, Joe Flaherty, Brian Doyle Murray, who was Bill Murray's brother, first Jerry Salzberg, and he was ultimately replaced by Eugene Levy. But at the first venue, uh, it was only there for it was a little under a year. And it closed because they weren't able to get a liquor license. Huh. And so there was this really hot room, no air conditioning, where people watched the shows. And they were really hysterically funny. And I went to those shows. And that's when I thought, oh, man, this is what I'd really want to do more than anything else. So then a year later, after that closed, a year later, they opened up on Adla- no Lombard Street in Toronto in an old fire hall that was converted into a stage. Ah. And the first company there was John Candy, Joe Flaherty, Eugene Levy, Gilda Radner, Catherine O'Hara, and Dan Aykroyd. That was a great show. And then Bernie Solms, who ran Second City, decided to open a show in Pasadena. Now he was determined to expand. And that was a really dumb idea, and the show (laughs) closed really fast. But he sent Joe Flaherty and John Candy and he, and Danny originally, but Danny drove home. He got partway there in a car and came back, just changed his mind, decided he didn't want to go there. <laughs> and so there were some opportunities, there were some openings there, and I auditioned and got in. So I was in a cast with Aykroyd and uh, Catherine O'Hara and Andrea Martin, people like that. It was great, it was great. I gave up my job in advertising. I was making a lot of money for this job on stage, making 145 bucks a week. But it was really so much fun that I didn't care about the money.
0: And then how does the Second City Television Series grow out of that? Well,
1: about a year after I was in that show, not even a year, less than a year, um, Aykroyd got recruited for SNL. Lauren Michaels was starting to put his cast together. And he took people from Chicago, from Second City, Chicago, like John Belushi, and later Bill Murray, but initially John Belushi, and Dan Aykroyd, and Gilda, who were from Second City in Toronto. And so Bernie Solins, who ran Second City, got really pissed off that you know somebody was launching a TV show with people out of his casts. So he decided to launch his own. But problem is, by the time he got it together to do the deal, SNL was already on and was a monster hit. So to try and sell another sketch comedy show in the wake of the success of that show was just fruitless. And he couldn't get any deals anywhere. Finally, they cobbled together a deal between uh, global television in Toronto and a first-run syndication deal. Uh, with a company called Rhodes that later became absorbed by Filmways, and we were in 48 markets in the states and on nationally in Canada on global television, very very low budget. Like I'm not exaggerating when I say that the budget for the first shows was $7,000 a show, all in, which included cast, um, writing, everything.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's, I know it, it came on, I think, in the United States in 77, and um, the, the person that turned me on to it was my older brother, who was able to stay up that late, because in a lot of markets it ran after Saturday Night Live, but that's at, what, 1 o'clock in the morning, sometimes right. one thirty. But uh, he became a fan instantly, and I tried to stay up a couple times. And uh, the the when I saw it, I liked it. And when we got a VCR, my world changed, and I was able to tape them and and watch them with my dad. At that point, my brother had gone off to the Navy, so it became a me and my dad thing. But um, yeah, it's it's strange too because you think in today's market, with the hit of, with SNL being such a hit, today's mentality they would they've been running up there trying to grab all you guys, making all these different sketch shows because that's just what Hollywood does now. Do you, do you think it's, that's changed?
1: Oh yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, th- there are a lot of things about Hollywood that has changed, you know, and that's certainly one of them. I mean, when we did Strange Brew, which was kind of a spin-off out of the television series, Yeah. if we had done that 10 years later, um, that show would have been 10 times more successful. That film would have been. It, it was just nobody, there were no spin-offs from TV shows to movies. And by the time Lorne Michaels got Wayne's World and Conehead oh, yeah, right, <clears throat> all his stuff spinning off, we were the first out of the gate, though. And so we unfortunately kind of paved the way for others, but didn't have the full marketing uh, of the studios behind us because they realized pretty quickly after we had done our show that they had botched it. And then the next guys up to bat realized okay we got something going for us here we have a, a show that's on the air every week so that's a television piece of marketing that is is that's marketing you can't buy you can't go out and buy an hour of time oh yeah you know for, to uh, advertise a movie so those later versions of the show were much more successful uh, those later spin-offs I should say from the show were much more successful and we were just a little bit ahead of our time you know we were, oh yeah. Like, doing stuff and trying to do stuff that other people um, did better later because the audience and the actual marketing machines of the studios were more in sync with how to do it.
0: I was going to tell you, I was out record shopping with my daughter uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, I own the Bob and Doug album on vinyl downstairs, and I was able to find a copy of it on CD, and I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, I listened to it all Christmas and, of course, put uh, the 12 Days of Christmas on my iPod. And my my daughters actually thought it was funny, even though they didn't quite get all the jokes. But my, my uh, nine-year-old thought it, found it pretty hilarious, the, the version of 12 Days of Christmas. Uh-huh. um uh, Back to Second City, um, it, one thing that really made Second City distinct was the fact that it kind of, since it wasn't, a live show done weekly, you know, that we had to have that evergreen quality to it. And it, did you guys consciously realize that and gravitate towards making fun of uh, TV shows? Or how did that concept come about?
1: Well, there are two things here. We made fun of TV shows because that was our concept. Our concept was that we were a little television broadcasting station. And so programming, our programming, which was going to be television shows, was ended up being... Kind of parodies and satires of existing television shows and then ones that we just kind of concocted that didn't have any reference in the real world and then the second thing is that we were never topical the way saturday night live was and and saturday night live strived to be topical with its political references and dealing yeah with, you know elections and current events and things like that that were in the news the week of the show but our show was shot single camera film way in advance of when it was aired. So we couldn't be topical because it would all be dead by the time the show hit the air. So we made a very specific and deliberate attempt not to be topical, and that ended up, strangely, creating a kind of an evergreen aspect to the show. Uh,
0: Which actually, in the long run, I think it it still holds up today when you watch the the DVDs.
1: Yeah, I, I think some things do, and other things are definitely... You know, they, they were uh, uh, generic in their time, Yeah. but they end up, you know, when you have references to um, Bob Hope, who's now deceased, uh, oh, yeah. uh, o- over a decade, and, you know, Richard Harris. And, you know, I, I remember I saw Frank Gorshin one time, uh, the comedian and impressionist, and everyone he impersonated in his act, this was later in his career, but everyone he impersonated in his act was dead. And I made myself a <laughs> promise at that time that I wouldn't do that. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that I wouldn't be the guy who was going out parading his dead act in front of a <laughs> live audience.
0: That's funny. Seeing evergreen aspects, whenever my dad sees a, a local commercial, particularly down in Florida where they're more prevalent, this, an owner of a business is doing his own commercial. My dad always says, hi, this is Phil from Phil's Nails. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: those commercial parodies were something that, because of my background in advertising, oh, I yeah. chose those initially, you know? That was where I kind of started out on the show and did ah. very, did some of the first commercial parodies. And then, and then we realized that that was a good way to kind of buffer our little shows in our programming days. So we started doing them regularly.
0: Was it different going from like rigidly scripted coming out of improv? I mean, did, did you kind of miss the sensibility or did you guys still improv it even when you were filming it?
1: Well, we would improv things if they didn't work. But you know, there's a sort of a mechanical aspect to shooting on tape and film, where if you throw the script out the window, then you don't have any props, you don't have any sets. There's certain things that have to be set that you know lock you into the realities of shooting on film or tape, and and even the way the script gets broken down and how you shoot it and what the director's job is in in you know capturing it on film or tape, and we did film and tape, it logistically locks you into keeping it fairly close to the script, you know? Yeah. If if something wasn't working, we would change it. And if somebody had an inspiration on the set, we would shoot it. But we stayed pretty much within the scripts.
0: Um, getting back to Bob and Doug for a second, because I, I know the TV legend has it that that was a, a direct response to the CONCAN rule, but then someone tried to tell me a couple of years ago, no, that's just what they said, that really wasn't the case. I'm like, "Not. I, I think that is true, because the CONCAN rule is real, and it, I know it applied to radio, because it, people used to criticize Canadian radio as playing too many Canadian acts at the expense of British and U.S. acts, but uh, was Bob and Doug a direct response to the CONCAN rule, or was he just making fun of the CONCAN rule?
1: It's actually CanCon.
0: CanCon, that's right. ConCan is, is, the, is the, is the uh, DJ from Montreal who had a hit single back in the 90s. He reversed yeah. the two things. Anyway.
1: Okay, it, it was not a specific response to the CanCon rule because there isn't, the, the CanCon isn't a rule. The CanCon is actually a government-funded support for Canadian entertainment and gives, it, gives Canadian-produced entertainment kind of preferential... Uh, treatment and tax credits and things like that. The, the, the Bob, Bob and Doug specifically got created because the SCTV in its third season was on CBC in Canada oh. and, on, and on NBC O&O's uh, owned and operated affiliates in the U.S. NBC. And Brandon Tartikoff was watching it. He was the president of NBC at that time and he was grooming the show. For this 90-minute show. We didn't know that at the time, but he was. In the third season, the U.S. version had two minutes more commercial content than the Canadian version, so that meant we had to come up with two minutes of content for the Canadian version ah. that, wasn't, that wasn't in the U.S. show, and the CBC made a specific request that we make that two minutes Canadian and distinctively Canadian oh, okay. because they were they were paying for this and they're a government funded network so we were kind of pissed off at this because it's like hey come on we, this is a Canadian show you know you idiots have been forcing your Canadian content on us since we were kids and we don't like that so I was a head writer at the time and then the job ended up being thrown in my lap to come up with the content that would be specifically Canadian so I just did it as a mean-spirited joke <laughs> against the CBC, <laughs> and R- and Rick jumped on board with it to help me, where nobody else in the cast really wanted anything to do with it. The concept, which we I said to the producer sarcastically, so how about we just put up a map of Canada and sit in front of it and dress in parkas and tubes <laughs> and drink drink beer, and he's and he said, well, let me run that by the CBC, and they said. <laughs> That'd be fine, and could you put a Mountie in it, too? And so we didn't put a Mountie in it, but if you look at the early versions, we had a beer mug that was in yes. the shape of a Mountie yeah, that yeah. was on the set, and that was our, our way of giving the CBC their Mountie. That's funny.
0: Yeah, it's it strange because yeah. um, on Saturday Night Live, I, I enjoyed the characters, you know, the wild and crazy guys the Steve Martin, but uh, I'm not really a big character guy. I'm much more of an impression parody making fun of stuff guy which is probably why second city appealed to me even more so than monty python in a lot of respects because i just love the impressions and they were done so well But I, as characters of course i loved bob and doug and oddly when martin short went to saturday night live ed grimley was probably my favorite saturday night live character and for that sctv connection so well um i think it's a good place uh, to leave off uh, i know you got some family stuff to do today and so again i really appreciate you taking the time uh, this was awesome sure great good and to uh talk to you. Well, our program's produced by P.F., P.F. Tape Recorder theme music by John Varopoulos and Doug O'Connor, a little help from me. P.F. Tape Recorder logo by Dan Coble. Special thanks to Dave Thomas. Our website, pfradio.podbean.com. P.F. Radio oversight for our show by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who after hearing P.F. do all these impressions this week, came into the studio and said,
1: Oh man, this is what I'd really want to do more than anything else.
0: I'm not Ira Glass. Back next week with more P.F.'s Tape Recorder. P.F. Tape Recorder International